So you've heard the mantra before, equal pay for equal work. If two people do exactly the same job, they should get the same pay, whether they're white or black or male or female or brown, doesn't matter. That's how it should be in the office and that's how it should be on the job site. This is the right way to be. And so tensions about money and fair wages and good working conditions and best practices are part of our day-to-day news feeds and it should be no surprise when if listening to today's gospel, we, we squirm a bit or we're a tad uncomfortable or we're left scratching our heads. I mean, the math just doesn't add up. How can someone who works for one hour make the same amount of money who has worked for three, six, nine, or, or even 12 hours? It seems more than just a little unfair. And so the theme I want to look at this morning is the surprising and challenging generosity of God. And what we'll find is that this gives us a lesson in kingdom generosity. This is how Jesus tells the story. The kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom, the world, the way God designed it, uh, is like a, a man who went out early in the morning to, find, to the marketplace to look for some casual laborers to help him in his vineyard. So he goes to the marketplace and seeing a few men, he agrees with them for their daily wage. I will pay, pay you a fair day's wage, a denarius. And so they head off to work in these landowners' land. And it must have been pretty early because in the ancient world, people worked from sunup to sundown. A while later, around 9 o'clock in the morning, he goes out again to the marketplace and, and he sees other laborers just standing there with nothing to do, so he gives them a job too. This time he doesn't negotiate with them, he simply says, I will pay you whatever is right, whatever is just, whatever is fair. And it seems that these unemployed folks are just too happy to go, so away they go. Around noon, the landowner goes to the marketplace again, and he hires other workers. And then at 3 o'clock, he goes back and he does the same thing. And then surprisingly, just before the day is over, at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, he goes for one final trip to the marketplace. And once again, he finds people that are just standing there. He invites them, and even at this late hour, he gives them a job in his vineyard. So far, so good. He, he seems like a really nice guy. Well, the day is over. And as is required by the law of God as prescribed in the Torah, the landowner is conscientious and he wants to pay these informal, these temporary workers for their day's work. So he signals to his manager and he says, call everyone over and have them line up with the ones that were hired last first and the ones who were, who were hired first at the end of the line. And you can imagine that there's some small talk as um, after a day's work. The ones who work the longest are looking pretty tired and they're looking forward to going home to their families. Um, they're still wiping sweat off their faces. It's been a long, hot day and their water bottles were emptied a long time ago. And as they stand in line, you know, they kind of peek over the shoulder of the person in front of them and they watch the landowner who is 
probably sitting at a desk under a tree at the edge of the vineyard. And he needs to keep track of his expenses. So he has a book and he writes down their names and the amount that each worker receives. And so the ones who worked only an hour approach the table. Name, they tell the landowner, he writes it down, and he gives them their wage. Here is your m money, a denarius, a day's wage. The ones who, who are further back in the line, who worked all day, they, they, they look at one another and it's like, wow. I mean, if they only worked for one hour, and if they get a full day's pay, imagine what we'll get. A full day's pay times 12. This is going to be great. And some began to dream about what they're going to do with the cash. Somebody else thought, well, this is great. I, I won't need to go to the marketplace and look for work for at least a week. Today I've hit the jackpot. You can imagine their surprise when the ones who came at 3 in the afternoon received the same amount, a single denarius. As did the one who's arrived at noon, as did the ones who were working since 9 o'clock, and, and then and then as did the ones who worked all day long. Matthew writes, now when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each one of them received the usual daily wage. Now, we can completely understand their feelings when we read, and when they received it, they grumbled. No wonder, I would too. It seems grossly unfair. And so, so they go to the landowner themselves and they say, look, at, this isn't fair. These last ones have only worked for an hour, but you made them equal to us and you treated them just like us. But don't forget, we worked hard all day long and it was really hot. But now, and I confess I'm following another translation here, but, but now the, the landowner calmly responds to one of them, friend, he says, not, not employee, but, but friend. I've done you no wrong. Didn't you agree to work for me for a daily's wa day's wage for a denarius? And of course, the worker would have to agree. In fact, the text highlights that they got the usual daily wage. So they got what was completely fair. The landowner didn't shortchange the ones who worked all day long. He didn't pay them less in order to pay the others more. He paid everybody exactly what he had agreed upon. And furthermore, the landowner says, take what belongs to you and go. You got exactly what's yours. But then he explains, you know, I, I have a right to do with my money. I have a right, I choose to give this person the same that I give to you. It's his personal choice. No one made him do this. The laborers who came at five o'clock, they didn't twist his arm. To the ones who arrived at six, nine, twelve, and three, he gave what was fair, what was right. And then he goes on to ask the penetrating question. He says, don't I have a right to do what I want with my own money? But here's the clincher. Are you envious because I am generous? The lesson is starting to get a little clearer. 
The laborers who worked all day long got what belonged to them. They got what was right and fair. The point is that the landowner understands the economic realities of all of those, whether they started at 12, at 3, or at 5, because they all have the same financial need. Their families were also hungry because the wage earners were part of an informal, unskilled workforce. They didn't have their own land. They didn't have the security of a paycheck at the end of the week or bi-weekly or at the end of the month, and they needed to eat. And so the landowner gives everyone the usual daily wage. And he chose to do this out of his generosity. There is a deliberate intentionality about this. And he's beyond legal reproach because he gave the workers the usual accepted daily wage. Now, now, this is surprising generosity, but it's also challenging because it goes the grain of, of our sense of what is right or wrong. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to be the guy that worked under the scorching sun only to be paid the same amount as someone who came in the cool afternoon and only worked for an hour, would you? So what are we supposed to do with a passage like this? What, what is Jesus trying to do? First off, we should recognize that this is a parable. It's a story that Jesus is telling in order to, to give a particular lesson. Not only that, it is a parable about the kingdom of God. And it's helpful to remember that Matthew organizes Jesus' teaching in five great sermons or discourses. And scholars believe that by the end of the first century, by the time the final edition of Matthew's gospel was completed, Christian communities all over Asia Minor were using the gospel of Matthew as catechetical material, instructions for new believers, for people who either had just joined or wanted to join the church. And so there's five discourses or sermons that serve as five markers or indicators or signs on a map showing us the journey, the way on the journey back to God. And these sermons, they offer concrete instructions to teach believers how to solve problems. And it's not just information, this is forming the heart. This is forming our attitudes. You may remember that the Old Testament law, the Torah, was called the Pentateuch, and it was a collection of the five books of Moses. And so given that Matthew was written primarily for Jewish believers, they would have understood that Jesus is giving them a new law, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. This is a new way of organizing their lives as citizens of the kingdom of God. Five books of Moses, five sermons or discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. And so here in this passage on one level, we, we learn that in the kingdom of God, justice isn't simply about giving everybody what they deserve. It is about the restoration of the whole community. It is about seeking the well-being of everyone. It is about learning to live well together so that everyone has their basic needs met and that no one goes hungry. But on another level, the parable confronts our attitudes, our attitudes, our heart. To live well necessarily impacts our attitudes, our values, our hearts, attitudes about other people, 
attitudes about God. And so part of what Matthew is doing as he categorizes the church is to address how we view other members of the congregation. It's easy to say, oh, the church is the body of Christ. However, relationships can quickly deteriorate if poor attitudes creep into those relationships. And a key negative attitude that threatens the well-being of any community is envy or discontent. It's murmuring. It is the inability to share in other people's happiness or rejoice when they are blessed. It's the challenge to be happy for somebody who gets a break because we right away kind of think that, well, maybe it's not quite fair because we still live in a tit-for-tat world. Not only that, to a Jewish believer, any reference to the vineyard would have immediately been recognized as a symbol of the people of God. Psalm 80, Isaiah 5, Jeremiah 12, and many other passages use this imagery to identify the people of God. And you know, undoubtedly, it was a unique privilege to be part of the people of God. And for centuries, they had been God's favorites, God's special people, but special set apart for the good of the rest of humanity. And yet Israel's unique role within world history was quickly misconstrued as, we deserve this special treatment. We're better than other people. We're number one. We're first in line. I mean, it, it wasn't easy to be God's covenant people. God demanded a standard of holiness that embraced all of life, a radical separateness as God chose to showcase what the good life looked like through Israel. And when Israel failed to, 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 to uh, show that, they had to bear the consequences of their disobedience. They were uprooted, the vineyard was trampled down and destroyed, and they knew the pain of exile, and they were oppressed by pagan nations. So now, when in a missionary context in which Matthew is, is writing his gospel, these same pagan nations were coming into the church with the good news, as the good news was spreading through Asia Minor, as Gentiles were coming into the kingdom, Jewish believers were glad, no doubt, but to a point they still expected to have the first place in the scheme of things. But the kingdom doesn't look like, work like this. Look how verse 1 starts. For the kingdom of heaven is like. And the word for suggests that there is a logical connection to what precedes our passage. And sure enough, at the end of chapter 19, as, as he talks about the cost of following him, Jesus, in, 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 uh, he stresses that, that, they're, they're, that the gift of faithful service in the kingdom, yes, it does bring great blessing and honor. Things like sitting on thrones with Jesus and judging the nation. And he comments that leaving everything behind to follow him brings with it bucketfuls of, of blessings. But Jesus also says, and pay attention to this, he says, many who are first 
will be last, and the last will be first. The rich young ruler that we meet in chapter 19 thought that being a part of the Jewish people and keeping the law was his ticket to heaven. He thought he was first in line because he had done all these things from his childhood. He had signed up, so to speak, in the vineyard since the early morning of his life. But no one says Jesus. The kingdom is really about generosity, about, about, about radical generosity. So sh sell everything you have, give your money to the poor, and come and follow me, and you'll have treasure where it really matters in heaven. And we know how the story ends. The young man went away grieved because he had lots of possessions and he considered that his possessions were a sign of being blessed for covenant faithfulness. The more blessing, the closer you were to the front of the line. And once again, Jesus takes this as an opportunity to explain that the kingdom is not about who is first in line. It's not about privilege. It's not about earning your way in or excluding others because they don't measure up to, to who we are or what we've done. And interestingly enough, just in case we missed it, if we go to Matthew 20, verse 16, Jesus repeats himself, but he inverts the order. He says, so the last will be first and the first will be last. So between these two verses, between Matthew 19, verse 30, and Matthew 20, verse 16, Jesus tells us this parable to illustrate what this looks like on the ground. It's a parable. Jesus is, is teaching us a spiritual lesson to form our hearts. This is not an invitation to create economic tension. It's not a lesson how to set up payroll, although he does remind us that all human beings have basic human needs that should be met with generosity. But he goes deeper than that. The way that we thought life should work is suddenly turned on its head. The kingdom of God envisions a different way of looking at the world, of looking at people. Entrance into the kingdom does not depend on, on gender or race or position or status or what we do for God. And it's vital to learn that at the end of the day, it doesn't matter where you are in the lineup. What matters is faithfulness to God's invitation into the kingdom. Whether someone has joined just for an hour, or three hours, or six hours, or nine hours, or all day, whether someone has endured the heat of the day or come in when so much of the hard lifting's been done, through God's overflowing generosity, each person receives what is right and it will be the same for everyone. It's what Jesus has called in chapter 19, inheriting eternal life. And you can't earn an inheritance. It's a gift. And that's precisely the point. Now, you know, it's easy to agree with this conceptually, to say, yes, this is how the church should function. This is what the kingdom should look like. But, but questions of privilege come in so quickly, in part because we always compare ourselves with others and in part because that's the way the world works and the world works very hard at shaping our affections, our emotions. The world disciples us all the time. And so if we're completely honest, it can be hard for us to accept this. I mean, if we grew up in the church, we've spent our lives trying to live with a biblical moral framework. 
instructing our children in God's ways, teaching them the scriptures. We've spent a significant amount of our income on tithing and supporting good causes. We make sacrifices. And then there's a non-Christian person who's lived a pretty well, you know, self-centered, pleasure-seeking life. They've gone on extra vacations. They have less financial stress. Suddenly they hear God's invitation and they've entered the kingdom and they're ushered into the very front seat. Or, or somebody has lived their entire life and then right at the very end, they've lived for themselves, and then right at the very end, they have a conversion experience at the 11th hour. Or they come to Christ on their deathbed. And while we're happy for them, sometimes in our honest moments, we can't help but think, you know, it's, it's not really fair. We made all these sacrifices all our lives. We've limited our spending. We've been chased in marriage and out of marriage. And, and here's somebody who's squandered their life. They've, they've lived the party life. And, and God gives them the same amount of grace. They're ushered right up to a front row seat. How does that work? Surely we should get something extra, a couple brownie points for good behavior, shouldn't we? But God says to beginning. It, it is a gift from beginning to end. You know, it's precisely here that the reading from Jonah can offer some help because it's as if we, we can listen into the disgruntled workers through the lens of Jonah's experience. Again, we, we know the story well. Jonah has been sent on a mission to God. He's been sent to Nineveh to warn them of coming judgment. He, he doesn't want to go. I mean, why, why should he? These are Israel's enemies and they've treated Israel pretty poorly. Uh, over the years. And so Jonah runs the other way. He finds a ship and he heads off in the opposite direction. Well, God sends a storm and it's, it's through the pagan sailors who, that, that, you know, they bring Jonah back to his senses. Jonah gets thrown overboard, but that's not the end of Jonah. God mercifully sends a large fish, swallows him up, spits him back on dry land after three days. God renews his commission, Jonah goes, he preaches, and what should have been every missionary's dream, the entire population of Nineveh believes the message, and they repent, and they turn to God. Now our reading picks up where we have God's reaction. God saw their repentance, and God changed his mind. God did not destroy them. And, and you know, Jonah's not happy at all. Um, he, he's, he's, he's not thinking about the most amazing, you know, letter that he can write back to his supporters. Uh, you know, a whole city turned to God, from the king right down to the poorest person. And, you know, even the animals, everybody, they started fasting, and there was a public display where they said, we're sorry. No, Jonah goes outside the city, and he pouts. He becomes angry, and he directs his anger to God, and he lashes out. He says, I told you so. This is exactly why I didn't want to go. I knew what you were like. You're a generous God. You're gracious. You're merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, ready to relent from, from, from do, doing harm. I mean, he, he just heaps on these accolades to show how good and generous God actually is. But no, uh, Jonah would rather die 
than see Nineveh coming to faith in God. Imagine. And so God gives him an object lesson. Jonah makes a bit of a shelter from the scorching sun, and he sits to wait and see what the outcome might be. God makes this plant, a vine of some sort, miraculously grow over him to provide some relief from the heat. And that makes Jonah happy, very happy, in fact. And the sun comes up in the morning, the third hour comes, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, and the day goes by as Jonah waits. Nothing happens. The city is not destroyed. By the next day, however, God sends a worm and the plant dies. Not only that, God sends this sultry east wind that comes from the desert and, and the sun was particularly hot and Jonah wants to give up and die. God, however, isn't done with Jonah and he uses this as a teaching moment. And he comes to face Jonah with a series of searching questions. Is it right for you to be angry? And he answers, absolutely, I'm angry enough to die. And now this, this same merciful, compassionate God asks Jonah to think about it. Jonah, you're concerned about this vine. You didn't even work for the vine. You had nothing to do with it. It grew up all by itself, grew up overnight, and died overnight. Jonah, Jonah, what's wrong with you? I created all these people. What, what's more important, thousands of peoples and animals or, or, or this vine? It's time to recalibrate your life, Jonah. You, you need open heart surgery. And so the book ends with a question, and should I not show mercy? Should I not be concerned? And I suggest that these two readings come together in a powerful way for us this morning. God is generous to all. When we see God showing his mercy to people that we think are, are, are less deserving than we are, or, or when we think that we still have some sort of clout with God because of our upbringing or our personal histories, we need to recalibrate our attitude. There, there's no room for the Jonah syndrome in the kingdom of God. We should not be tight-fisted with grace or the gospel. We should not begrudge God for his amazing generosity. And so the readings confront our attitudes, our heart. Jonah, at the end, should I not show compassion? Should I not be concerned? The landowner, are you envious because I'm generous? Both questions are left unanswered in the texts that we read this morning. We don't know how Jonah responded. Neither do we know how the laborers in the parable responded. The question isn't just for Jonah or the workers at all. The question is for us who have gathered here this morning or who are worshiping from home. Have we been grasped by God's generosity so that we willingly extend it with generosity? A kingdom life is a life that's shaped by a story whose central theme is one of undeserved grace. Undeserved grace embodied in Jesus Christ. It is the story of a merciful God who shows mercy, compassion, amazing generosity, a willingness to forgive. He shows steadfast covenant love. It's not abstract. 
It's concrete. It's not rhetorical. It's real. But listen carefully. Showing that mercy has a price. It will cost God's son his life. And in immediately following what we read in Matthew, Jesus explains that he will go up to Jerusalem. He will be betrayed by his friends. And because of envy, he will be handed over to the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they will seek his death out of envy. Even Pilate, the pagan, recognized that. So the leaders of the people, those who were first, the very people who should have known about mercy and compassion and the kindness of God, will despise and reject Jesus, Jesus the Messiah sent by God to the vineyard. The very ones who should have recognized that the greater than Jonah was among them and that in his resurrection, three days after three days in the grave, they would have had the greatest sign of all that God's kingdom had broken into history, their history, their world, their story. And yet they're the ones, the very ones who rejected him. It would have been a powerful reminder that God is faithful to his promises and that those promises were for them and the nations. And they should have rejoiced in the amazing generosity of God. But they didn't. But you know, this is also our story. And so this morning, it's an invitation to have a conversation, a dialogue with God, just as God dialogued with Jonah and the landowner dialogued with the workers. It's a call to recalibrate our lives with a lifestyle of the kingdom of God. And kingdom life necessarily means living in a way that reflects the character of God. We are heirs of the kingdom through baptism. We have been drenched in grace together. And the goal is that we become a one single body. And that's Paul's point in today's reading. Live a life worthy of the gospel. And he says, and again, I'm using another translation here, but he says, standing side by side, firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel. Side by side, one spirit, striving together, not one in front of the other, not who's first, who's last, together, side by side, as people of God. So this morning, God gives us an opportunity to, to examine our attitudes, to look at our heart, to repent of any narrow understanding of the gospel or, or a stingy view of grace until we are transformed into people who live, who embody, who announce mercy, forgiveness, and grace with joy and delight, with generosity. And surely, it's as we return again and again to the source of life, as Paul so eloquently says, points out to us as he says, for me to live is Christ. Christ is the very center of my life, he says, that we will find the key to a generous, grace-filled life. He points us back to Jesus because it's as we ponder his amazing love for us who did not deserve it that we will be able to extend the same kind of love to others so that we learn to rejoice in God's surprising generosity whenever and wherever 
he chooses to show it. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, set our hearts on fire with love to Christ so that we learn to love as Christ has loved us. Take hold of us, Father, in your surprising generosity until we reflect that generosity in a broken world in what we do, in what we say, in our attitudes, in all that we are. And it is to you that we will give praise. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.